0: Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At a Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Susan Magsiman, the founder and executive director of the International Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She also serves as senior advisor to the Science of Learning Institute at Johns Hopkins.
1: Susan's work focuses on the intersection of brain sciences and the arts, and looks at how our responses to aesthetic experiences can improve and
0: shift our overall health and well-being. With so many of us still in quarantine, it felt like a good moment to check in with Susan, who can help explain why so many of us are acting and feeling the ways we are. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Susan. Welcome to At a Distance. It's so great to have you with us here today.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I wanted to start with just what's on the top of your mind right now?
2: Wow. Nature. Sunshine. Warmth. Vitamin D. (laughs) Peonies.
0: Are you getting any of that?
2: All of the above. Every Mm. day, multiple times a day. It really is my oxygen, literally, getting outside and smelling the flowers and watching the birds. A lot of nature.
0: Mm. So... Obviously, we're gonna talk neuroaesthetics today. I was hoping for the listeners um, up front, you could just sort of define in simple terms what neuroaesthetics is.
2: It's really how your brain changes on sensory experiences. And the more heightened those experiences are, the more power it is to your body and to your brain.
1: Mm. We're spending so much time inside right now. And I'm curious to hear from you, like. What makes us feel a certain way in space? Can you talk about the science behind this and sort of describe what many of us may not be realizing about the spaces we're in and how we're feeling because of them?
2: So we have become beings that are so transactional and we move through spaces without necessarily feeling them. We're we're very task oriented for the most part. We're moving from one thing to another. And I think over the last eight weeks or so, we have found that our bodies are experiencing all kinds of emotions, and we're starting to understand more about the relationship we're having between our bodies and brains and the spaces we inhabit. I think a stark way to think about it is social distancing, where when you move into a room, you now can't be in connection or in relationship with another. You have to work around the other. So you're starting to know what space means, right? You're starting to understand what six feet or 10 feet means and what that relationship is to a wall or to a ceiling height and to another person. And also starting to, I think, feel A sense of what you're longing for what your body is asking for so when we started this you asked me what was top of mind for me Um, it's it's fresh air right it's that light so all the things around neuroaesthetics are sensory oriented they're around our perceptions of ourselves in the world and of the world and you know everything we perceive we perceive through the lens of conditioning genetics and how we were raised, our culture, and our experiences. So how you move through a world is all about that. The way you're thinking about space is your product of all the things that have come before, and you bring that with you when you move into a space.
1: Mm. And, and how can sort of deep engagements with the senses help us during this time of quarantine?
2: Well, I think the first thing is to know how you're feeling. So are you feeling tired? Are you feeling cramped? Are you feeling that you really need to be breathing and do you need more more space, literally more space? Are you feeling like you need restoration and what would restorative spaces mean? You know, there's a lot of tools in the space toolbox from thinking about texture or olfactory smells, thinking about the curvature of a space or lack of curvature of a space, where the light comes from, what the light source is, what the um, gradient of light is. But when you know how you're feeling and what you're craving, then you can start to seek out those different types of sensory experiences.
1: How do you think screens are affecting us these days? I'd love you to kind of go into this idea of Zoom fatigue and just this insanity we're all in with a lot of screen time.
2: Well, I'm going to start by talking about early childhood development because I think it's really essential. You cannot learn a language on a screen. Children don't learn language by watching television because you don't have that three-dimensionality. You can't get that social, emotional, that embodied cognition on a screen for a young child. So neurobiologically, neurodevelopmentally, you have to learn through serve and return from this very physical, multi-century type of experience. Mm. So now cut to we're adults and we're trying to communicate to a, a very one-dimensional, two-dimensional at best experience. And so it's not three-dimensional, it's not tactile. You're not getting the nuances of what someone's saying. You're looking at me, but you're not really looking at me. You're not responding to me in real time because there's this interface. So there's an incredible cognitive load on every one of us that are trying to connect and relate. 10 hours a day with seven people on a screen. And so it's, it's very exhausting. You wake up in the morning, depending upon how well you slept, with only so much cognitive load. And so the more things that you have to do that take away that sort of chip away at that cognitive load, the less you can bring to thinking about things like imagination, creativity, creative problem solving, innovation, focus, attention, all the things that you know are really important in an individual process, but also in a collaborative or group process. So we're using so much cognitive load to just show up and to just attend. And that makes it really hard to... So a lot of people are talking about they're not as productive or there's like this suspended animation and they're working really hard but they're not getting as far as they think they should mm. in part they are working harder than ever their brains are working harder than ever but they're really shutting down which is why it's so important to rest why sleep is so important and self-care is so important right now in terms of sensory stimulation and rejuvenation it's so a time for it to be very generative because you're depleting yourself so much every day
0: mm.
1: And especially you bring up the children who are, you know, I know with my own three kids, they're, they're on Zoom all day in school. Do you think that, you know, especially looking into next year, if if this continues on, if there's the second wave, do you think that we're going to have to kind of really drastically rethink if this is being effective or not or what the negative outcomes of, of learning online will actually be?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a linear this or that I think it's really a yes and. There are so many project-based learning opportunities for when children are home. There's a lot of ways that you can provide content online, but then also experiment and explore offline. And I'm sure you guys remember when you were younger, you explored every moment of your day wasn't scheduled. You had an opportunity to test and learn, to serve and return. And so I think it's really thinking more dynamically about what technology can offer in this moment, which is Fantastic! You can bring in experts. You know, you can bring in almost literally anybody in the world to your kids. You can bring a museum from Australia. You can bring a national park. You can do all kinds of things virtually. But then to invite children to use that knowledge to build and create and process and then share their creation so it becomes a much more integrated, dynamic learning model. And I think that's what we're going to be needing to go to is something that's a whole lot more iterative than just sitting in front of the screen and getting basically an educator pushing stuff out to you and it being very concrete and very sort of linear in the way that the thinking happens. And so it's an opportunity to rethink education. You know, in higher education, online learning has very low success rates. It's extraordinarily low, like lower than 10%. These are highly motivated adults. So to think that kids are gonna be highly successful when adults who are really motivated by a monetary return for the most part are not able to really stick it out to these kinds of online courses, I think it's an opportunity to think about scaled learning, about what you can look in terms of content acquisition. So interest to mastery, being able to do a lot more personalized kinds of experiences for kids and older learners, lifelong learners. So I I think if we stepped back to say, what is learning? What does that really mean? Is it to be able to regurgitate information? Is it to be able to process information, to have meaningful thinking, to have deeper thoughts around collaboration or creativity? It would give us an opportunity to not just try to fit the Tao into the whole, but to really think about what learning could mean right now. Mm-hmm. You know, Even in cooking, all the things you do every day, there's opportunities to learn and teach and grow. And so finding new ways to think about that.
0: I wanted to bring that up actually this idea of working with your hands and making things so many of us are like you mentioned cooking three meals a day often we're baking we're gardening we're drawing all these actions under lockdown what do you think these practices sort of say about us that we're engaging in them so much now that we're locked down but also what impact are they having on us
2: Well, you know, in some ways, it's a return to our humanity. It's a return to sort of this very tactile sensory experiences that we have set aside because of the nature of how transactional we are and how we've really become so productive that we really have not saturated ourselves in those things. There's some interesting studies around the use of handwork or tactile experiences. And one huge takeaway is that you don't have to be good at it to have huge benefits. And I feel like <laughs> yeah. I'm the poster child for that. Um, so, so there's a study that was done at Drexel by a, a researcher named Garija Kamal. And in doing any kind of handwork for about 45 minutes, cortisol reduced an average of 25%. So wow. cortisol is really that stress hormone. And what it showed was that just by using your hands, you were able to calm yourself to sort of self-medicate, if you will. And that's a huge finding. You know, There's a lot more work that should be done in that area. And it didn't matter what you were making or whether or not someone saw it as being good, Mm. whether that was a high level of skill. Mm. Things like baking and cooking use all of your senses, including taste and smell. And that's super important. But it's also that touch sensory system that ties right into the central nervous system. So it's really a way to begin to look at things like dopamine and serotonin. So, you know, those are those sort of reward system neurotransmitters that really help you feel better, mm. not just calm, but better, happier, right? And so knitting is another, there's a great, my grandmother used to say, idle hands are the work of the devil. And, um, <laughs> and she was a knitter and she started knitting when her daughter was diagnosed with leukemia and she was dying in the hospital. And my grandmother started to knit because she couldn't knit her thoughts together. She needed some way to do mm. that. So, you know, the metaphors of that, and she knitted her whole life. You know, she lived to a hundred and she probably made, 20 million granny slippers and sent them out all over the world because she could fill a void at through this making and so yeah. there's something about creating too right mm. that's so great about handcraft mm-hmm. you see it you see it it's visible and there's a sense of accomplishment there And then if you're giving it to somebody, the oxytocin of that, that connective hormone that we all need is right there, too. So, you know, when you make something food and you give it to someone and you watch them eat it, your oxytocin Mm -hmm. goes up because you're in relationship. And right now, I think social distancing, isolation, loneliness are things that people are talking about but it's because we're social creatures, right? We want, we need each other, and now we can't touch each other. So what can you give somebody that you've made? What can you give of yourself?
0: Mm. I'm sure there's a lot of productive knitters right now. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of other arts, like music, what sort of impact does engaging listening have on us?
2: Yeah, music is probably the closest thing to a magic wand that there ever was. Music first of all, from a neurobiological point of view, engages the entire brain. So it really is kind of this wash, if you will. It's the fog that rolls in, it permeates you. The ability from a neurobiological perspective to engage your whole brain is pretty extraordinary. Different types of music really do different things in different parts of the brain and, and affect you in different ways. So slow, low tones like the oboe often make you feel sad, right? They allow those emotions to be engaged, to be able to be touched, if you will. Faster beat songs engage things like the amygdala or the motor cortex, where, you know, you want to move, you want to dance, which also increases dopamine. Music Also has such a strong autobiographical, you know, the songs of your life, the playbook of your life that Mm. usually in our teens, early teens and early 20s, when our hormones are really going crazy, the songs that we listen to then are the ones that we remember. We have a cousin who has frontal temporal dementia, so she really can't do anything. She can't um, turn on the television. She can't uh, remember that she needs to bathe. But if I start to sing Amazing Grace, she knows every single word because Mm. it's the music that resonates with her. So we spend our time together singing. And she can remember all kinds of things when we go to the hippocampus that's been preserved through, you know, where all the plaque and stuff is happening in other parts of the brain, somehow the hippocampus, the memory center, is holding these songs that have been so laid down. So, you know, whether it's somebody that has Alzheimer's or dementia, or someone who has a neurodegenerative disorder like Parkinson's, something about sound and music and rhythm Mm. help to reduce the symptoms. So the gating and the tremors of Parkinson's and allow folks to be able to walk and dance sometimes only when they're dancing, but other times there's some residual effect, short-term, midterm, long-term of being able to stay off some of those kinds of symptoms. So music is powerful. Sound is so powerful.
0: Yeah. It's almost like an oral escape for so many of us who are stuck inside and Quarantine. Yeah,
2: and you can go anywhere. Books are like that too. Mm. You know, the bibliotherapy of of literature. Whether you're listening to a book or reading a book, it allows you to imprint your own vision right. of what a character looks like, what a place looks like. You know, what the emotion was, and so books are also a narrative that we can create in our yeah. heads. Unlike other kinds of art.
0: What about? art i guess specifically you know and i'm thinking extensions not just say a painting on the wall but coloring books puzzles what do these practices say about us and how does kind of art therapy function in this in this way
2: so carl jung was very interested in the mandala and the mandala as a circle where within that space you really kind of played out your visual life and those mandalas changed as you're moving through different phases of your life or different issues around your life. And that's very much a coloring process. Coloring is very good for stress reduction. So, whether it's the adult coloring books, you know, it takes you outside of yourself and it puts you into another form. And again, it's this tactile ability to be able to use motor skill along with color and decision. Color is also highly cultural and highly um, personal but there are some norms around color so blue being a calmer color red being a hot color yellow being more of a sort of heady color more of a enlightened or illuminating color so thinking about how you use color and how that transcends into into that kind of work art therapy is an interesting paradigm you know, there are art therapists, so music therapists, dance therapists, visual arts therapists that do fantastic work. And they're trained really to think about these art forms as behavioral change models. So how do you change behavior from a psychological point of view? And they oftentimes work with psychologists or psychiatrists or other clinical practices to reach a certain clinical Outcome, So it might be symptom reduction, stress reduction, anxiety. It might be helping you to be able to sleep better by listening to music or smelling lavender or other scents that particularly work for you. And there's a lot of research around the so olfactory work. There's also the sort of therapeutic artists or artists in health, arts and medicine, where artists who aren't trained as professional Art therapists are using art in healing in hospitals or in high needs communities where there's great public health issues, mm. or working in nursing homes where um, you're coming in and and providing movement. Not necessarily as an art therapist, but an artist using these health and well-being models. So I think about art for prevention, and I think of art with a lowercase a, art as prevention art as intervention, and also art as maintenance. Mm. Art in many ways is like exercise. It's good for you and you need it every day. And how you get it depends on who you are and what your narrative is and where you come from and and the things that you gravitate to.
0: Mm. Throughout your career, you've worked on a range of social impact programs, products, projects. And I'm wondering sort of, we all have this power to design a world that supports health and well being around us. A lot of what you've been alluding to. What sort of programs or projects do you think we should be thinking about or people should be developing right now so that we can really engage in them as we emerge from this pandemic?
2: The through line in all of my work has been helping people see that the language of humanity really is self-expression in lots of different forms yet society values a certain kind of expression you know it's the orator it's the person who's a really great writer it's sometimes the loudest person in the room and yet we all have our unique ways of expressing ourselves and finding deep meaning in many different ways of expression and also in the breath the range of human emotion that we hardly reach. So right now we're experiencing fear and uncertainty in a way we've never experienced before, unpredictability. We're experiencing loss and grief. I think we're also finding some amazing joy in these smaller silver linings where I mentioned I've been tracking some barn swallows and I'm loving them. You know, and I've got some baby bluebirds out here and so I feel like the shifts are going to be not from the institutions, but from the grassroots, from people saying, I need to be connected to myself. I need to feel, I need to, to be transformative, not transactional. Mm-hmm. And I think as people start to say, I have to have this, you know, when 25% of the population has lost their jobs, there is no longer a normal And I don't think we're going back. I think we're going forward. And so I think it's going to be individuals who then find each other like we're doing right now, coming together and saying, this needs to work differently. And it has to work differently for me and then in my family and then in my community and then in my my smaller group. I think policy and politics are going to shift because people are going to be having no longer feeling like they can they can live in an austerity model, in a deficit model. There needs to be a generative model. So I see that coming from the ground up. I don't see institutions sort of saying necessarily we're going to have to do that. Although today I saw Twitter just said that all their employees could work at home forever, indefinitely. And I think you're going to start to see technology companies do more of that. Obviously, service organizations are going to be the last ones to come online. But I think you're going to start to see more... Work life, family life, we've talked about this stuff theoretically forever, but now it's real. So what Mm. does work life and family life really mean? Is it a nine to five or is it, I put my kids to bed at eight and now I'm going to work till midnight because I needed that one o'clock in the afternoon to four o'clock to help my child do homework. And so I think these paradigms are are going to shift, but it's going to come from the individual, Mm. like it always has, right? The populace standing up and saying no. And I think it's a groundswell that we're seeing.
1: I agree that that it's going to begin with the populace, like it always has. But when it does get to the institutional level, we do have this opportunity to possibly rebuild in new ways. One of the things that you've spoken about, you know, you consider yourself a, a we person. Collaboration so important to you. You come from a big family, and you understand multiple perspectives. I'm curious from here to hear from you about this idea of, you know, I don't love the word interdisciplinary, but this idea for the need for multiple. Sectors at the same table, you know, multiple modes of thought. So, this has been talked about for a long time. We should have philosophers at the table when we're building new technologies, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we will eventually get there out of this, this sort of new need for, for a more rounder table?
2: I do. And I think of it like a spiral. Mm. You know, we've been there before, and the spiral just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the spiral is a really good model, visual model for it. I think in the course of human history, that's how things have grown often. Mm. I'm working on a project right now. Our lab has partnered with the Aspen Institute, and we're developing something called the NeuroArts Blueprint, which is a multi-sector Interdisciplinary. I, I don't love that word either, but it's it's everybody's got a see It's the only one table. we have
1: now, right? <laughs> I know everybody's.
2: It's messy. It's messy. Yeah, everybody's it's there, mess. and and there's no hierarchy. It's really just like I come know. on in, and we're looking at building a roadmap for the arts in health and well being and learning, and it's from. Yo-Yo Ma to Renee Fleming, from mm. the mom who's running a community organization on the street to someone who's running a mental health program in Australia. It's looking at all of the stakeholders who use these sensory aesthetic experiences to help make health and well-being more viable. And it's complementary and integrative. It's not saying it's pharmaceutical or arts. It's saying, how do we bring all these things together together? You know, ultimately, it comes down to policy and money. Mm. And those are the two things that we have not been able to show that the science of the arts is there. And that's what this project is about. It's showing the science of the arts. It's looking at landmark studies. It's looking at the mechanisms. It's looking at the clinical trials and bringing that forward to say, so this field needs, like Alzheimer's research, Billions of dollars in funding, not millions in millions, meaning five to 20. It needs much more funding. It also needs policy that supports arts in school and early learning, because talk about prevention. Prevention is talking with little, getting little kids to understand social, emotional learning through mm. these kinds of aesthetic experiences so that you don't have downstream the kinds of mental health issues that we're that we're dealing with. So we're really looking at an economic model. I think it's going to happen. You know, there's still so much shaming about interdisciplinary. So colleges and universities have been talking about, you show up, you say, here's how I want to change the world. And they help you put together a curriculum for you so that you can do that. The reality is there's not a single university that's doing that Mm -hmm. because the students know that business wants you to be in a discipline. They want you to be an engineer. They want you to be a neuroscientist. They want you to be a philosopher. So it's hard to get an interdisciplinary degree because it's not valued in the culture at this point.
1: And the irony is that most amazing leaders had the strongest liberal arts education.
2: Totally, totally. It's a disconnect, right? Yeah. It's a total disconnect. And then the argument you know, is like, well, that's a one-off. And there's so much fear-based in our policies. You know, It's why we took the arts out of the school when Sputnik happened and the government was like, in the 70s, we're only going to talk about STEM, right? We're only going to teach you these hard skills because soft skills aren't going to get us to the moon. We're going to fall behind. And so we're such a fear-based culture and we're more fear-based than ever right now.
1: And how are we seeing the results of this? I mean, we're, we're coming out of maybe a decade where kids were told, no, go get an engineering degree, you'll get paid lots of money to create basically ad tech right. for Silicon Valley. And all of this AI, all of these predictive models didn't do much for us now. So I'm wondering if you think that right now is the real moment that soft science becomes actually much more relevant than the hard sciences.
2: Well, you know, I think it's it's like salt and pepper, sorrow and joy, right? They they go together. They have to go together. And you know, the hard sciences are important, but so are these humanities. It's the blending of mm-hmm. arts and sciences that I think is really important. And hard science has been seen as somehow being better than, and I yeah. think it's the perception is going to shift. Think about who makes the money, right? So it's not often the author or the artist or the painter, it's the technologist or the engineer. So what we pay for is what we value. And that has to shift. And I think that's going to be harder to shift.
1: Mm. Because it's harder to quantify, right?
2: Yeah. I think of it like, how far do you bend something before it breaks? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are right now. Some of these norms, they're bending. Mm. And at what point, do they not hold up anymore and they just aren't seen as valuable? And look at student loans. You know, the amount of student loans in, in the United States is are huge and the return on those investments are not there even for the engineer. So that's another one that I think is bet so far. And, you know, there's a spotlight that's been shining on things like what we invest in and what the returns are, how we take care of our most vulnerable. So the folks that are getting COVID and dying from it are the under-resourced communities. We talked about it, but now we're seeing it. And I I feel like that's where the shift is. But in order to make large-term policy changes, leadership has to be informed and enlightened. And so leadership shifts will have to happen at the federal level for sure, but at the state level, and also at the local level. And I think that's, again, where people are going to say, I need somebody I can trust. I need somebody who shares my values. We have the same values. So, you know, we're in such a cultural upheaval. And I think that will shift, that will shake out. But I think people, even the hardline folks, are softening because there's so much pain. And mm. that's that's a good thing. Vulnerability is a good thing.
0: Yeah, to finish, what's giving you the most hope right now and going forward?
2: Well, I feel very blessed to be in communities of people who are thinking about how to respond to the pain and the anxiety and the uncertainty, whether that's scientists that are doing that work or artists that are doing that work. So I feel like we are an incredibly Resilient species, and we're incredibly adaptive. And I'm loving the way people are adapting. Like right before you guys called, my mom showed up. My mom is 87, and she wanted to get out in the sun. So she's. We have five sisters, four, sis, five girls, four sisters. So she's going from house to house just stopping by putting her mask on 10 feet away just checking in and that's that's adaptive right that's resiliency and so i think we are strong you know i think we're cut and bleeding and petrified but i think we as a species do not give up and give in and i think we help each other too i think we're also really by nature social and i i think that gives me great hope
0: Mm. Susan, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to speak with you. You
2: too. Really a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.